Jinja is a town in southern Uganda, on the shore of Lake Victoria, near the source of the Nile River. It is Uganda's fourth largest city, having once been its capital, and it's about 50 miles east of Kampala, the current capital of Uganda. Today, Jinja is known for its tourism, its whitewater rafting, kayaking, and quad biking. But it's also known as the unlikely epicenter of a small but growing group of hackers. Hackers for Charity is an organization founded by Johnny Long, one that enhances technology in Jinja. Hackers for Charity was born out of Johnny's own success and burnout. His book, Hacking Google, was a bestseller, but after, he just wasn't feeling it. Here's his talk from DEF CON 17. See, I had lots of stuff. I had the fame and the cool job and the free beer and the rock star friends, but even with all of this stuff, I was pretty miserable. The good thing is I figured out what my problem was. My problem was I didn't feel like my life counted for a whole lot. In fact, I didn't feel like I was making much of a difference at all. Burnout is a major concern in InfoSec. Many who are very successful hit a wall with technology or with social media. They have the fame, they have some money, and yet they're pretty miserable in their day-to-day -day lives. Only quitting your job and moving to Africa for charitable work is really expensive. Typically, there's a need for crowdsourcing, and that's what Johnny did. Hackers paid for our mission trip to Uganda, Africa. Some of you remember this. Well, the folks in Uganda that we worked with, that was AOET, they found out I was a computer guy, and they're like, you're going to do computer stuff. <laughs> I'm like, rock on. So we cleaned up some computers and put together a little computer lab, and I took a handful of wireless cards, and I pulled their office together into a wireless network, and I was proud of this picture, Google loading wirelessly in their office in the middle of nowhere, Uganda, because of us. That was awesome. <laughs> Small victories sometimes have big consequences. But it caught me off guard towards the end of the trip because they showed me what this did. And what this did is this basically reopened this office. This office had sort of crawled to a halt because they were processing kids that had lost their parents and they were trying to find profiles and sponsors for them, sponsors to pay for their schooling and all that stuff. And their network, their computers were so screwed up that they had to like stop. And now kids were streaming into their office and getting food, education, medical care. My work in Uganda had immediate life-changing results right away. You might not think of hackers as charitable people, as individuals who might be working to make the world a better place. Then again, if any of this comes as a surprise to you, you might not know any real hackers. Welcome to The Hacker Mind, an original podcast from for All Secure. It's about challenging our expectations about the people who hack for a living. I'm Robert Famosi, and in this episode, I'm talking about hackers who do charitable work in the real world, using their skills to improve the lives of others, and along the way, perhaps also teaching others how to be more curious about the world in which we all live in. So what is a hacker? There's this media image of a black hoodie antisocial individual. There's also another media image of someone in neon purple hair and ripped jeans. 
Then there's this image of a hacker who looks like they work in a big corporation across town. Well, all of these are correct. So I asked Jack Daniel, community advocate for Tenable and co-founder of Security B-Sides, for a simple definition of the word. The loose, uh, not modern media definition of hacker is basically somebody that pushes limits and uh, tries to get things to do cool stuff. Unlike what you might see on TV or in the movies or in a book, hackers are indistinguishable from anyone else. Really. I sit in sessions at Black Hat and DEF CON, and people in the crowd there might otherwise be at a local movie theater or a shopping mall. These really are people who could be attending a Salesforce conference. Okay, maybe not a Salesforce conference, but you get the idea. Each individual in the room has their own unique story, their own passion, their own interests, that often goes beyond the world of just ones and zeros. The hacker crowd um, is a bunch of people who have a bunch of interests. And so, you know, there, there are people who sew, there are people who quilt, there are people who knit. There is a group of us who are into ironwork, although I haven't done a lot of blacksmithing in a few years because of life. But, you know, there's, there's a group and, and some of us are involved in those local things. And often these outside interests are the root of how they became hackers in the first place. Being a, an old car guy, the things I was, I was talking about old hot rodders, you know, you push the car to make it go faster until something broke. Uh, you fixed that so it wouldn't break again. You pushed it and you found the next weak link. Um, and you, uh, you know, you, you took a little lightweight economy cars and put big engines in them to make, the go, make them go way faster than anyone ever intended. Um, and things like that. Uh, so that sort of mentality of let's see what I can do with this or... Um, you know, how, how can we push this and, and get it to do what I want to make it better? The thing is, hackers really don't do this just for themselves. They want to get the word out that it can be done. And that comes into, you know, the, the old hacker mindset of sharing. I mean, uh, simultaneously uh, self-taught, it's a bunch, but also um, sharing information. And there's a long history of you know, from uh, BBSs forward to conferences and uh, forums and, uh, you know, even to a certain extent, Twitter is still, it's not what it used to be because of the noise level, but there's still a ton of good content that comes out in social media if you curate your lists and uh, don't engage with the trolls, which is hard to do. Jason Kent from Sequence agrees. Well, you know, hackers like to solve problems, right? If, if a hacker does anything, it's solve problems. Um, they will bang on that problem until it's solved. Uh, and when you see somebody without shoes uh, living in a place where they need shoes, you want to solve that problem. This goes back to the 19th century line. If you give a fish to a man, he'll have food for a day. Teach him how to fish and he will have food for a lifetime. The original quote is from Isabella Ritchie, the daughter of William Makepeace Thackeray, who wrote, If you give a man a fish, he is hungry again in an hour. If you teach him to fish, you could do him a good turn. Either version, the idea here is to empower others to help themselves and hack. What we do, what we tend to do as humans is hand them shoes. Um, but uh, what hackers do is say, well, why aren't there shoes? Well, there's no cobbler because there's no one that knows how to make shoes. So let's teach someone how to make shoes. Sometimes hackers aren't even using much technology. One of the common threads amongst almost all hackers is they really love technology and they really hate it. Most of us have some non-technical thing that we do. Uh, I keep bees. I've got a little farm. 
Um, you know, I, I do a lot, but I do a lot of high tech stuff in my farm. I've got hydroponic tomatoes and hydroponic peppers and, you know, all these things that um, your traditional farmer doesn't have as well as traditional farmers. I've got a tractor. Jason's journey started like most others with a conversation at an East Coast hacker conference known as ShmooCon. ShmooCon and like, I don't know, 13, 12, something like that. I ran into Johnny Long and uh, one of the things that he does to raise money is um, he has a leather project, people that tool leather in Africa. Um, and then he, he brings it to the States and he sells it. Uh, and it's funded a lot of really interesting programs over there. And when I was a kid, I took a leather tooling class and uh, I looked at his leather tooling and I thought, man, you should get these guys a little bit you know, better tools. Um, you know, there's plenty of places where we can get better tools for these guys. And we had a long discussion around it and I told him I wanted to help. So Jason and Johnny started talking in earnest. And at the time I, I was working as an SE, uh, and I got quarterly bonuses and I told him the next bonus I get, I'm going to buy you some thing that's going to change the way you do the leather program, but I don't know what that is. So you got to tell me. There are some unique challenges with providing machines to someone in Africa. For one thing, how do you ship it there? For another, how about that electrical grid, which is not always dependable? Uh, and he ended up settling on a, a stitching machine that is, is hand-driven. You, you pump it. You know, it doesn't have electricity. It's good for Africa. Uh, it's made out of cast iron. Again, good for Africa. Um, and so I said, I'll bring you one. And I put it in a suitcase and I loaded it on a plane and I flew to Uganda uh, and I brought him this stitching machine and, uh, you know, we became really good friends after that. So there are a lot of opportunities here to help others in Africa. So once arriving there, Jason put himself to work to see what else could be done. So my involvement's been largely, um, you know, finding other places to uh, help around that as well as, you know, talk about the people of Uganda and the people in the world that uh, live in small places and have very little means. And so um, we've spent a lot of time advocating for people that just need a little bit of hand up. Uh, I don't like to ha just hand people money. Um, I like to hand them ideas. They'll go find their own money. Um, but if they never see it work, they'll never know it does. It was while in Africa, Jason started seeing ways that he too could get involved directly. One of the things that happened while I was there was I started a charity um, with the guy. It's called the Nile Living Water Initiative. We, we train plumbers. Um, and uh, I'm not a plumber and I never have been a plumber, but I built a biogas digester with a plumber and, you know, the rest is history, I guess. Biogas might seem to be kind of a highfalutin technology here in the United States. But in this case, it comes from the basic fact they have cows, they need fertilizer. Um, when we started this biogas program, I knew that there were cows, you know, because my church had donated cows uh, to various orphanages over there. Um, and I knew that people had cows, but they didn't know what to do with the manure. And there's, you can only pile it so high. Again, this might not seem like an obvious problem with a technical solution. But if you follow Jason's thinking, it makes a whole lot of sense. 
Um, and so we spin up biogas projects uh, in Africa where if you have a cow uh, and you're constantly complaining, what do I do with this manure? You can turn that into biogas and fertilizer and a foliant feed and an insecticide. And, you know, there's all these systems that you can build around just simply having a cow. This goes back to some cultures where if they killed a buffalo, they tried to get as much use from it as they could with nothing wasted. Here, we're not killing cows, but we're also not wasting anything either. So plumbing makes a lot of sense in this case. This is the reason why we train plumbers is you need somebody that can get, you know, fit gas line uh, to come out of the, the biodigester and to build the digesters. Um, but once you run it through a biodigester, you get methane gas out of one side uh, and you get a liquid digestate out the other side that's you know, it can be hydroponic fertilizer, it can be regular fertilizer, it can be foliar feed, insects don't like to eat the plants that it's touched. Um, and all of a sudden there's all these benefits from this waste stream. Hackers love to tear things apart. And one of my favorite things to do is to find a waste stream and turn it into productivity. Yeah, find a waste stream and turn it into productivity. That's a great motto for any hacker. Bottom line, people like Jason are making a change for the better. The last time I went to Uganda, I, I went there with no project and I went there purposefully to sit and think. Uh, and people thought I was, you know, nutter for, for traveling all that way. But you know what I learned while I was there? We have to solve problems differently. That's not to say Jason and others came to Africa to impose their technology and their way of thinking. Quite the opposite. Um, we need to let the Africans solve the problems in Africa. What we need to do is facilitate them solving them. Now, if the problem is they don't have good critical thinking skills, we can approach that, right? And <laughs> we can address those things. Which raises a question. Can curiosity be learned? Absolutely. Uh, it just takes a, you know, an innate desire to learn about anything. But can it be taught like a subject in school? Um, most of our formal education, structured education, starting uh, in the earliest grades is, um, is a processing plant. And um, with the exception of you know, if you're lucky, one or two teachers, in particularly in, in the early years, uh, there's a, a boot camp-like mentality of getting you to obey, getting you to, and you need that. That, that you know, you can't have disruptive environments, but you, uh, um, it's really hard, especially now with a lot of standardized testing. It's really hard to let children explore, let them play, let them find their place, let them within safe limits, push boundaries. Um, and so if you don't encourage that young, if you don't support that young, it gets beaten out of people. I think, um, I have no proof of that, but that's my gut feel is that a lot more people are born curious than end up curious adults. And, um, it, it may be unfair, but I, I think it's fair to blame, uh, our education system for a lot of that and societal expectation of, of conformity, although we seem to be making a little progress there with a lot of pushback. So there are countless cases where someone was denied something or told they couldn't do something and then went about learning it all on their own. 
So how well does that translate to hackers? I don't know, but the idea of, well, we got some challenges. What can we do? What can we do to make it uh, better? What can we do to make it less bad? You know, that's another one of the, the, the things that we struggle with in security is there's, um, and a lot of other places in life, we struggle for perfection. And, um, and that's great. We struggle for things to be wonderful. Uh, but in reality, if you can make it hurt less tomorrow, you've done a great job. And uh, that often is something you can do with a little creative thought. And so hackers and others may not necessarily be born with such ability, but they can be encouraged to think differently. One of the things we've lost in the U.S. is the ability to put a lot of great minds together and have them solve the problem. We didn't use uh, NASA scientists to get to the moon. We used a bunch of people who became NASA scientists to get to the moon, right? We've forgotten that along the way, and the hackers bring that back. That's a great point. So people don't have to be trained as hackers. They can evolve into hacking and bring their rich backgrounds into the community. Um, I've, I've met some really great people. I've had an amazing career where I've gotten to meet some just amazing people. And every now and then you meet somebody that's like, yeah, they're going to end up somewhere doing something amazing. Watch. Uh, and you can meet anybody. I've, I've met people that have library skills. Um, and you would wonder, well, how is that going to apply to hacking? And then they get a job in an infosec role, you know, keeping all of the compliance documentation together or whatever, right? Um, wherever your skills are, you can probably apply them here. Sometimes this is tricky. For Jason, flying in a bunch of tablets might solve some problems, but it might also create some problems for him or his charity. So hackers really like this idea of let's get to the root of why this exists and solve it there. Uh, if the problem is that there's a government that's holding us back, we'll figure out a way around it. You know, I, I have traveled to Uganda several times with uh, things that they're supposed to tax me for. But we learned a long time ago that if you just put the Hackers for Charity stickers on everything, then it's part of an NGO and they can't tax you. Um, you know, throw me a problem. I'm going to figure out what that problem is and I'm going to solve that problem. And sometimes technology in and of itself is not the answer for the problem at hand. Google did that thing a while back, that guy that he pedaled his bike down to the library to figure out why his potato plants were dying. And that Google gave him a mountain of technology. Johnny went and met that guy. It's all still in the boxes. It's all piled up in the corner of his hut. He doesn't want that stuff. He just wants his potatoes to not die. Um, there are several places in Africa where we do agronomy kind of training. Um, you know, it, you have a few acres of land and you, and you want to plant some seeds. You got to really understand how that works. Uh, so just handing out a tablet that has, you know, basic agronomy stuff on it and letting them figure it out uh, is huge. Sometimes something that we take for granted, such as the ability to go online and learn something, that's not always possible elsewhere. So one has to be creative in how to solve for that. Um, you know, I can walk into a village in tribal Uganda, hand out 25 iPads and a little box that has Khan Academy offline on it, and I can give the village a K through college education. Uh, with a teacher that doesn't need to be a teacher learning how to you know, manage that kind of thing. If you want to change the world, 
you have to realize that you have to change the way you see it, not the things you do in it. Similarly, Hackers for Charity doesn't just want to ship technology. They also want to train others. And sometimes those others include fellow charities. Um, we work with all kinds of charities there. The reason Hackers for Charity exists isn't because we you know, want to hack charities. It's because we want to assist charities with technology products in places that that's really difficult to do. So maybe you want to help out. You get on a plane and you land in Uganda. A couple of immediate problems. One, you might be suddenly surprised when your mobile no longer works. That is, until someone teaches you how to hack it. You know, a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, 21-year-old grad student will show up in Africa with their iPhone that's uh, provider locked to their provider in America. All of a sudden, they can't communicate, and they're used to being able to communicate. Uh, so being able to just simply hack the phone and unlock the provider on it uh, has helped endless grad students <laughs> Um, you know, get to the point where they could do things. Their laptop won't connect to the Wi-Fi, whatever, right? Um, we see lots of those kinds of problems and we solve them all the time. Sometimes it's a matter of being creative on the spot and applying your skills in a whole lot of different ways. That's one of the things that Johnny taught me a long time ago. Uh, and it's one of the things that I bring to the organization. And it's not just Africa that needs our help. We see um, huge amounts of charity being funneled into all kinds of places in um, places like uh, the Philippines and uh, where there are, you know, uh, poor sections of town where just simply giving people job skills is, is important. And it's not just for ongoing struggles like Africa or the Philippines. Sometimes assistance is needed as a result of a natural disaster. For example, Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico. When the hurricane hit Puerto Rico, uh, there are hackers in Puerto Rico. We sent them radios and lights and you know stuff so that they could, their core problem was when the power went out, so did the lights. And when the lights went out, that was the security of the area that everyone was in. No street lamps meant that thugs were running around. Well, you give a team of people radios and lights and ways to communicate and suddenly the thugs are being beat just by the fact that people can run inside and lock their doors. DerbyCon was a hacker conference in Kentucky that lasted about nine years. It was founded by Dave Kennedy and others and is best known for its charitable spirit and community. At DerbyCon in 2018, Jose Quinones and Carlos Perez presented their work in Puerto Rico the previous year. We're going to be talking about uh, our experience uh, with uh, Hurricane Maria, uh, titled Disaster Strikes, a Hacker's Cookbook. So we'll be talking about uh, how we went from last year's DerbyCon back to Puerto Rico. And uh, with the help of the hacker community, we did uh, some uh, stuff and how the people from Puerto Rico started doing, uh, you know, their own hacks to get things done and, and you know, try to fix and go back to normality. The DerbyCon community, uh, both the organizing team and the volunteers, but also the, the people that hung out at DerbyCon were part of it, raised an incredible amount of money over the years. Um, and it went a lot of different places, inclu including Puerto Rico. Um, and it 
launched some things, uh, but you know that that raised a, a lot of charitable contributions. Someday, perhaps I'll do a whole episode around what was DerbyCon. But there are other conferences, and as mentioned, besides DefCon, Hacker for Charity, they all try to help out where they can. Um, you know, other ones have done that not as uh, not as much of a core kind of component of the event, but you know, uh, we've certainly seen events support a variety of things. And then there are the organizations, such as the Electronic Frontier Foundation or EFF. They're a great resource for privacy information. If we support things like uh, EFF, they don't just protect us. I mean, you know, they're, they're out there protecting those of us in the digital world. But, you know, what the EFF does uh, is, not, um, is not limited to what we do. They're trying to uh, put their vision of a safer, more secure, and more private um, digital life out there on the front lines. And so when we, you know, work with EFF, um, we're doing that for everyone, not just us. You don't have to travel the world to find problems to solve. Sometimes they're right here at home. There's been a, a huge interest in mental health and mental health adjacent uh, issues. I've been involved with Joshua Corman and several others. And for over a decade, we've been talking about the impacts of stress and burnout and um, some survival tips and trying to raise awareness. And, um, you know, the, the bad news is we haven't made any progress in eradicating it. The good news is that not just us, but a lot of people have uh, made real progress in raising awareness of the issue, which is a first step. And then there are the individuals who are foundational in InfoSec. Jack and others have been chronicling their lives in a project known as The Shoulders of InfoSec. One of those listed under the rest in code was someone named Bob Abbott. Bob Abbott, um, when he was at Lawrence Livermore, did uh, computer programs and computer operating systems for healthcare. Um, you know, he wasn't just securing things that it, at Lawrence Livermore, uh, you know, he later went on to form you know, probably the earliest red team. And on the site, there are others who are still among us, such as Ron Rivest, who is the R in RSA, and Whit Diffie, who is perhaps best known for the Diffie-Hellman algorithm, a key exchange protocol that enables two parties to communicate over a public channel and establish a mutual secret without it being transmitted over the Internet. They, too, have been civic-minded and in a variety of other things because their interest in protecting the people's rights to information and making the world a better place. People like early cryptography uh, people in our field um, were, were interested in privacy and security and have continued to do that. So there are people that are interested in uh, and have been involved in anti-war movements, in beyond-war movements, in... Um, a variety of other things because they were interested in uh, protecting people's uh, private information and making the world a better place. And we lose that often about people like Ron Rivest and um, Whit Diffie and people like that, or, uh, you know, Willis Ware. Willis Ware was an extremely notable early contributor to InfoSec. The Ware report was written in response to a request from ARPA, the forerunner to DARPA, tasked with identifying issues with multi-access resource-sharing computer systems. It was prescient in many ways, urging the development of internal and external encryption technologies to protect data on more and more open systems. 
In fact, much of the thinking behind the Ware Report was later incorporated into the infamous Rainbow Series of Defense Department regulations for trusted computing systems. Most of us that are historians of any level or have read Ware Report from late 60s uh, into early 70s, think about it as a computer science thing. But because he had the vision he did, he was very concerned about privacy. Um, and that goes back to the mid-70s, pushing the U.S. federal government to have a privacy law to protect everyone, uh, not just those of us who know to worry about it and know how to do something about it. And then there are those in our field, luminaries, such as Dan Kaminsky, who quietly helped others. There, there are a lot of people that do a lot of things. Um, we recently lost Dan Kaminsky. And like I said, the, the, when we talk about this, the, the first one that came to mind was, was Dan work uh, with colorblindness and a, and a technical solution to that. DanCam is an app that Dan created that attempts to provide a variety of mechanisms for allowing the colorblind to determine colors of objects around them. It is still available from the App Store for a nominal fee. Here's Dan being interviewed by NBC News. If you're colorblind, you really just cannot tell that red from that green. DanCam is named for its developer. Dan Kaminsky. An internet security expert by day, Kaminsky says he built the app to help a friend who is colorblind and is frankly shocked by just how many people he ended up helping. People are telling me they're in tears. It was an amazing project and that's the kind of thing that people do. And then there are the unsung heroes, individuals who work in their local PTAs and other organizations, just one of the millions working day to day, but also quietly teaching basic security skills to others who don't necessarily know. Um, and a variety of people do volunteer work that, that um, isn't within the community. They're, they're reaching out, whether they're helping schools or churches or, um, you know, just doing other things for the um, the betterment of the world, not just specifically about tech. But there are a lot of people that share their time to educate those outside of our communities on the fundamentals um, of security and securing themselves. Uh, we get into conversations about, no, don't, don't, don't share the mail list that way. Please don't share the mail list that way. You know, it's like, why not? Well, here's why you don't want to do that. Um, and so those things kind of happen organically as well as the, the more structured stuff. And, you know, the, but we do tend to focus um, a lot of effort inward and, you know, that kind of goes with the uh, take care of your own community first and then, and then reach out. After several years in Uganda with his family, Johnny Long has since relocated to the United States. He remains, however, creatively applying his hacking skills to non-traditional areas effectively wherever he can. When he was transitioning back into uh, the U.S., he came and stayed at my house uh, for a couple of months. And he went to, we have this place called the Columbus Idea Foundry here in Columbus, um, where it's a, it's a makerspace that has, you know, amazing fun tools. And uh, he spent a month with a blacksmith, you know, just making knives. Um, and he decided that he wanted to come home and I wanted to support him in that. After spending time in Columbus, Ohio, Johnny resettled in rural Arkansas. So Johnny came back here and he started taking uh, things like a CNC machine and robotics out into rural parts of the U.S. 
Here, I might add that numerical computer controller router, or CNC in this case, is not necessarily a computer router in the networking sense, but a hardware router in the old school sense that it cuts wood or plastic using computer software. So Johnny lives near Walmart, um, but he lives kind of far from them. So he's in the middle of Arkansas, right? Um, lots of uh, poor schools and that kind of thing. So he does technology programs. Same thing he's doing in Africa. Um, he does technology programs here in the U.S. Given that Johnny Long has since relocated to the United States, does Hackers for Charity still remain? But all the stuff that he started in Africa is still there. Um, you know, the training center is still there. The best computer training you can get in Uganda is in Jinja, Uganda, at the Hackers for Charity Computer Training Center. Um, and corporations in Uganda send their staff there um, to, to learn how to use simple things, Word, all the way up through programming and how to use different kinds of tools. And how has Hackers for Charity continued to operate against the worldwide pandemic? You know, I keep up with the guys in Uganda. Um, they got hit really hard. I mean, think about the way we dealt with the pandemic in the United States was, you know, we kind of spent a couple of weeks at home and then, but we didn't really, and then everybody had to wear masks, sort of. Um, in Uganda, they banned automotive travel. They banned people from walking down the street. So different countries handled the pandemic very differently. Um, you had to stay home for a month. And people live hand to mouth there, right? So uh, the days that anybody could go into town, I sent cash. You know, Western Union luckily was still functioning and wasn't flagging me as a terrorist or whatever. And I could send a few hundred bucks so that I could feed 50 families, you know. Even before technology, people were able to remain in touch. It might have taken months for that letter to arrive by ship or weeks by Pony Express, but there was communication. Today, things are much, much better. Um, that kind of thing is, is how I got them through the, through the pandemic. And just yesterday, I got a, a photograph of eight of our students just graduated from our apprentice program. Um, we were able to keep things moving very slowly and albeit, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know how much weight everybody lost, but I'm sure it was a lot uh, because they couldn't eat and stuff. Um, we got through it just by simply staying connected and understanding the need was there. Uh, one of the major guys in my charity's son was killed in a car accident uh, during the pandemic. Couldn't hold a funeral for him, couldn't, you know, all, all the things that, that you can imagine were impacted by it. Um, and it, he got hit by an ambulance. Um, and so, you know, being able to be there for them in a way that was what they needed uh, required us to communicate with them. So. I, I realize Zoom isn't a great medium for communication, but it has helped bridge the physical gap. We've got this great global communication network, and that's how we survived it. I mean, if anybody wants to argue with me that the Internet's not super important right now, I'll, I'll point you right back to every Zoom kid uh, that spent you know, time in a classroom on Zoom this year. Um, we, we all have to learn... We've got to communicate like we have been. Um, you know, hackers have been doing this for a long time, and, and that communication got us all through this. I'd really like to thank Jason Kent and Jack Daniel for veering off our normal InfoSec interviews and discussing this important other side to hacking. There have been a lot of great advancements made by hackers in our various communities, and those advancements don't all involve Cali or Burp Suite.
Sometimes they involve hands and feet on the ground in the real world as well. Hey, let's keep the conversation going. You can follow and DM me at Robert Vamosi on Twitter. You can also join our subreddit. And you can visit thehackermind.com to find out more about our new Discord server. The Hacker Mind is brought to you every two weeks, commercial-free, by For All Secure. For The Hacker Mind, I remain your always civic-minded Robert Famosi.